And my good morning to Corbett. Uh, my name is Tom Ricks. I'm one of the pastors here at Green Tree. It's good to see all of you this Sunday. I didn't get to see you last Sunday. I was not sure where I was last Sunday. It's a bit of a fog, uh, but it's good to be feeling better. Thank you for every, so many people that reached out and prayed and asked me how I was doing. Uh, I appreciate that very much. Uh, we had a great day yesterday. If you were here, you know that. Uh, we had, I don't know, 200 or so folks in our parking lot. We had 3,000 Easter eggs. We had a whole bunch of little ones scattered all over uh, the, the yard in the parking lot. We had the bubble bus, which uh, left a lot of stains on my car. It was parked in the wrong spot. I'm not sure who I see about that. Um, but we had a lot of folks from our neighborhood. I would say if there were roughly 200 people here, probably 40 or 50 of us were from Green Tree and the rest were visitors from our community. So if you're here visiting this morning because you came to the Easter Egg Hunt, we're glad you came back this morning. Uh, we hope that you would uh, consider Green Tree as your neighborhood church. Uh, we're here every Sunday, but we had a, a great time with, uh, with the kids yesterday. Let me invite you, if you uh, would like to, turn your Bible to John chapter 12. I'm going to kind of continue in the theme of Palm Sunday this morning. Uh, we're going to consider uh, what it means to follow Jesus uh, in the context uh, of all of the celebration and the kind of the hubbub that uh, took place on that particular day uh, as Jesus entered Jerusalem. I did some reading this week, uh, being reminded of the sacrifice that a lot of our founding fathers made uh, at the beginning of our nation. So maybe you've seen that picture of the Declaration of Independence with John Hancock standing there signing and everybody's there in the Freedom Hall in Philadelphia and everybody's dressed nicely and it's, it's just wonderful occasion where we declared uh, our independence. If you've studied that part of history, however, you know that the price that was paid by the people that were in that room that put their names on that sheet of paper, and others like them who weren't there. George Washington, for example, I don't know if you know this, but when he left home to take command of the Continental Army, he did not return to Mount Vernon ever for a period of six years. He didn't get to go home and see his family. He didn't get to go home and, and manage his estate and his business affairs, he had to leave that to others. And it was literally six years before he returned home. That's quite a sacrifice to pay. I want to read just about a couple of other of our founding fathers who signed the Declaration of Independence. Francis Lewis was from New York and his wife was captured by the British in 1776 and she later died in captivity. Uh, Lewis himself lived out his years in relative poverty, having sacri sacrificed his independent fortune for the cause of patriotism during the War of Independence. John Hart from New Jersey, the Hessians destroyed his farm, his livestock, his other property. Uh, the hardships that brought him by destruction caused his wife to become sick. She died as her husband was trying to reach her and get her medical help. He was forced to flee into the woods. He slept in caves while the British... Troops invaded his property and others. William Ellery of Rhode Island, his house was burned down. The rest of his property was destroyed by the British. Thomas Nelson, Jr. of Virginia, lost his fortune, aiding the war effort, and died in poverty. These are some of the people that sacrificed to make our country great. There were other people that lived in the colonies at those times. That some of them sacrificed as greatly as well, and others didn't sacrifice much at all. Uh, they just observed what was going on around them. There's something about coming to a moment at the crossroads of life, which happens not 
maybe just once in our lives, but maybe a handful of times, where sacrifice is right in front of us. It's the moment of truth, and that's where Jesus finds himself in this passage of Scripture this morning. He's facing the cross. It's about five days away, and the question is, what will he do? How will he respond, and how does that impact you and me? John chapter 12, verses 12 through 15, and then verses 20 through 32. Hear the word of God. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And then skipping down to verse 20 and reading through verse 32. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for the, uh, the, the beauty of our, of our kids uh, lining the aisles and, and helping us wave palm branches and sing Hosanna and welcome to the King. Father, thank you for what they're learning even, even now as we uh, come to worship you with our minds, our thoughts, and our intellect. We are so grateful for the men and the women in this community who week in and week out uh, teach our children on Sunday mornings about the grace and the glory and the mercy of Jesus. Father, we pray that you would give us hearts to learn this morning. We pray that you would give us teachable spirits. We are tempted to... Uh, be comfortable in our knowledge, be comfortable in our presuppositions, uh, in our assumptions. Father, uh, if I am to, to break down the wall of my own heart to make, uh, make it listen, uh, listen to you, I'll, I'll fail terribly. I certainly can't do that with a whole room of people. We haven't come here to listen to me, Father. We've come here to study your word. Whether we uh, are meeting you for the first time or whether we have known you for many years. So, Father, forgive my sin. Please don't let me stand in the way of your truth this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we want to do this morning is examine 
the, uh, the sacrifice that is confronting Jesus. Our sermon in a sentence goes like this. Jesus' attitude and his behavior, so we're going to try to look at both those things. His attitude and behavior when facing the cross gives his disciples a clear pathway to follow him. So the first thing you need to ask yourself this morning is, do I believe that I'm a follower of Jesus? And if you are a follower of Jesus or a disciple of Jesus, then what does that mean in your life? What does that mean in my life if I confess that I'm a disciple of Jesus? Not just uh, something that I think about, not just an emotion that I feel, but a life that I live. And the way I want to look at this passage this morning is consider the praise that Jesus received. That's the first thing we're going to look at. And secondly, we want to look at the proclamation that Jesus gives uh, in the context of the praise he receives. And then thirdly, we want to see his persistence as he moves steadfastly forward towards the cross. So first, let's look for a moment, uh, the praise that Jesus receives. We call this the triumphal entry. If you've been around church at all this time of year, at any part of your life, even if maybe you, you haven't been in church since you were a child, but if you were at church during Easter time, you've, you've heard that notion of the triumphal entry. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem to confront sin and death for you and me. And in verse 13, he enters into the city of Jerusalem, and it says that they took out branches of palms and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So the content of the message is both visual and verbal. First, they're waving palm branches. Uh, you and I don't wave palm branches that often, and I'm supposed to tell you when you leave this morning, unless you really, really, really want it as a souvenir, and you're older than 15, please leave them in the box on your way out. Because uh, apparently we make those into the ashes for Ash Wednesday next year. I don't know how that happens. I'm just the messenger. But we don't think about palm branches very often. We're not really sure what the context of that is. But the palm branches in Jesus' day, it, it, it showed a victory celebration. It, it showed that a, a championship was at hand, so to speak. So I, I hate to even mention this, but apparently the Chicago Cubs had the biggest crowd celebrating a World Series in the history of, of World Series. So to our, our, our four or five Cubs fans here at Green Tree Community Church, I guess every hundred years you get five million people together, you know, where that's nice for you. We can only muster a hundred thousand or so because we do it so often. It's just so hard to keep up. You don't hear the bitterness, do you? Um, but, but there's a throng of people. And, and they're, they're beside themselves with joy and with celebration. And that's the, the content. This is, a, this is a street party of all street parties because the king is coming to town. Even the king of Israel. But in verse 14, we also see that he, that he comes riding on a, on a donkey. And for us, that seems kind of pathetic. It's like, why don't you get a great big horse? But, but an eastern donkey would represent nobility. Uh, a great king would ride on a donkey in a time of peace, symbolizing that he didn't need a horse, that he had already conquered, that he had already put to rest any rebellion, any resistance that might be there. So he could literally come on an animal that didn't need to engage in warfare. He's royal and he comes in peace. And the, and the quote is out of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey. He's called Zechariah promises that there's going to be a king. And, and Zechariah had prophesied 
uh, some uh, 500 years before the coming of Jesus as the, the nation of Israel has been in captivity in Babylon and they're, they're kind of slowly limping home. And there's a, a, a morale crisis in the nation of Israel. They are a broken people. There's no celebration going on whatsoever. And Zechariah promises that one day their fortunes will turn and God's Messiah will, will redeem. And now you fast forward 500 years later and, and the nation of Israel is now under the boot heel of the Romans. Nothing much has changed. The generations are still being oppressed and Jesus arrives. And he arrives on a donkey. And Matthew, uh, as well as the Apostle John, point out in their Gospels that people remember Zechariah's prophecy. And they look at Jesus and they say, could this be the day? Could this be the day that the celebration actually starts the revolution and we're set free? Because you see, everybody that showed up at that parade had an agenda. Everybody that showed up to welcome Jesus had a notion in their mind of what the Messiah is supposed to do and who the Messiah is supposed to be, just like everybody that showed up here this morning. If you, if you believe in a God, you have some presuppositions about him or about her, depending on the context in which you see God. If you're a skeptic about God, you have some reasons to be a skeptic because you feel perhaps God, if there is one, has failed terribly. If you are a disciple and a believer of Jesus, you have some presuppositions about God when you walked in this room. Every one of us has an agenda in our lives, and the agenda that day for the people of Israel was, is this the king that's going to throw off the Romans? And perhaps this celebration breaks out into a frenzy because of the anticipation that perhaps at last we could be free. There's a difference between excitement and passion and genuine faith. And the question that, that has to be asked this morning is, there, is this crowd filled with genuine true followers of Jesus or are they simply caught up in the moment? Because that's the question we need to ask ourselves. That's the question I need to ask myself. Am I a disciple of Jesus? Or do I just come to Green Tree on Sundays and kind of get caught up in the emotion and the praise and the worship, and then I go and kind of live my life the way I want to? Can I share a pet peeve with you this morning? Would that, would that be all right? Could I be a little honest with you this morning? It's a hockey pet peeve, so it ain't going to affect most of you, right? So the Blues are in the playoffs, right? And the vast majority, how many people did had no idea, to be honest, did not know the Blues are now in the playoffs? Come on. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate that. All season long, those of us that are true believers and, and are loyal and have been crushed year after year for 50 years, we still buy tickets. We still spend our hard-earned money to go to hockey games. We still go when they're not very good. And then the playoffs come, and we want to go buy our tickets. And all of you that don't know very much about hockey, jump on the bandwagon. And you're all excited about going to watch because now they're winning. And of course, everybody likes a winner. So you drive the ticket prices up and it makes it harder for the true fans to go and enjoy their hockey team. Okay? So stop it. <laughs> I'm not even going to say anything else about that. It's easy to get on the bandwagon when, 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 it's, a, when it's a great day. 
It's, an easy, it's easy to jump on and say, hey, our, our team's winning. Here comes Jesus. You might not have ever seen Jesus. You probably heard about him. You certainly know something about him if you've been in and around Jerusalem for the last three years. And maybe this is your first time, but you get caught up in it and you, you grab your palm branch and you start shouting too because you're excited about this. This might be something that's really good for you, but it isn't necessarily a true faith. It isn't necessarily an honest belief. Verses 17, we didn't read these verses, but verse 17 and 18 say, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. Let's go see the guy who raises the dead. And then when the Greeks show up in a a few verses later, all right, they come up to worship and they find Philip, who's, who's kind of a distant cousin. They can kind of, kind of talk to him a little bit and they say, we just want to see him. We'd like to have a private audience. Could you set up a meeting with us? There's curiosity there. There's maybe even a, a tone of awe and uh, being impressed, but it isn't necessarily worship. It isn't necessarily discipleship. So I find it interesting that Jesus allows this worship to take place. He doesn't tell people to be quiet. He doesn't rebuke them for that, but he's not distracted. He goes straight to his response. Let's look at his proclamation. His proclamation is a message of sacrifice and discipleship. Sacrifice and discipleship. Let's look at the sacrifice first. Jesus answered them. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Well, that sounds pretty good, right? We're in the middle of the, the parade and people are shouting and people are, are you know, waving the palm branches and there are thousands of folks going crazy. And Jesus says, well, now's my hour to be glorified. And if you're standing there, you're like, great. All right, let's go kick Pontius Pilate out. Let's set up the kingdom and let's get on with it. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you, when you see that in your Bible, truly, truly, it's Jesus saying, stop and listen. Pay attention to me very carefully right now. When I was a kid, my mom used to grab me by the face, say, look me in the eye and listen, right? That's what Jesus is doing to us right here. Look me in the eye and listen, Jesus says. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In the context of the triumphal entry, this is truly astounding because this is the moment where Jesus could dodge the cross. This is the moment where Jesus could go in a very different direction. This is a moment where Jesus could put self-preservation ahead of your salvation and my salvation. This is a moment where Jesus could look at all the sin and the brokenness of the world and say, it simply isn't worth it. And you know what? If he made that decision, he would be on morally firm ground. God doesn't owe you anything. God does not owe me anything except justice. And sometimes I think we lose sight of the fact that this grace and this mercy, not only did it cost God a tremendous price, but it is not something that we can demand. I'm going to read a quote for you. I'm not going to put it on the screen. But listen to the words of R.C. Sproul, a very famous 20th and early 21st century Christian theologian. What happens is that we get accustomed to God's grace. At first, we are amazed by it. The second time, not quite so much surprised. By the third and fourth time, we begin to expect it and we assume, and uh, then we assume it and then we demand it. And we're angry if we don't get it. The greatest distortion in our thinking, dear friends, is thinking God owes us mercy that God is somehow obligated to be gracious to us. But think about that. 
The minute the idea comes into your head that God owes you mercy or owes you grace, let a bell go off in your brain that says, whoops, I'm confusing these concepts because grace by its very definition is voluntary. God is not required to be merciful. He reserves the right to be merciful to whom he will be merciful and to be gracious to whom he will be gracious. You can plead for grace, you can beg for mercy, but you can never, ever demand it. Justice may be required, but never, ever mercy. And it is because God is holy that any time he withholds justice, he is giving grace. This proclamation of Jesus is a proclamation of self-sacrifice. He is the kernel of grain that has to fall to the ground and die. Why? So that he can bear much fruit. What is that fruit? Well, some small portion of that fruit is sitting and Lord willing standing in this room this morning. We are recipients of God's grace. If you are a disciple of Jesus, it's not your discipleship that earns you a right into heaven. Your discipleship is a response to the grace and the mercy and the compassion of Jesus. And so at a moment where he says, my time has come to be glorified, what he says is, my glorification is going to happen through my death. Glorification comes through the cross, not in spite of the cross. And his death is that which leads you and me to be able to be objects of God's grace. But Jesus then turns in this proclamation and he turns kind of away from self-proclamation and talking about himself to talking about his followers. And it's also a message of discipleship and it's a twofold invitation. In verses 25 and 26, Jesus says this, whoever, now he's talking about his followers, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me where I am. There my servant will be also, and if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus is inviting us to join him in his death. What does that mean? If you love your life, if you try to hold on to it, you're going to lose it. But if you let it go, you will have eternal life. He's saying stop trusting in yourself. That's a literal dead end. Stop trusting in the the vague and the empty and the shallow promises of this world, whether it's riches or fame or power, because that is literally a dead end for your body and for your soul. But if you despise all of that, if you reject that notion and you embrace the notion that putting your faith in me will save you, you will have eternal life. That's the first part of discipleship. It's joining Jesus in his death. It's putting my life in its proper priorities, making my loyalty to Jesus no matter, number one, no matter what temporal outcome awaits me. Because my end goal is not this world, but my rest in him for all of eternity. You maybe looked at the news this morning and saw that some of our Christian brothers and sisters stepped into eternity earlier today in the country of Egypt, not because they wanted to, but because they were murdered for their faith. Perhaps you've uh, kept up. We've sent out some emails from time to time about our colleague in our EPC denomination, Andrew Brunson, who's still held in captivity in a Turkish prison because of his faith. Jesus doesn't promise us that life will be simple, but he does say this, I guarantee you, I will keep your life for you. It will not be lost if you trust 
in me. That is part of discipleship, is joining Jesus in his death. But then notice what else he says. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be also. That's not just physical promise to the future that we'll be with Jesus someday. He certainly speaks of that and says the Father will honor us. That's our hope and our promise that's, that's coming eventually when we stand before our Lord. But Jesus is saying, attitudinally, do we stand with him right now? Is my heart the heart of Jesus? And if it is, then I become a servant. I become a caregiver. I become someone who follows Jesus and makes choices in my life that reflect that I love him and that I long to be like him and to emulate him to the rest of the world. The proclamation that Jesus gives is that discipleship is not a spectator sport. We don't stand on the sidelines and wave our palm branches and then go about our own personal business with our own personal goals. We die to ourselves. And we are alive in Christ. And when we're alive in Christ, we want to follow him. We want to serve him. And we want to serve others. That's his proclamation. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to do it. Let's look at the persistence of Jesus. Our third observation this morning. First thing I want you to see that Jesus is genuinely disturbed in this passage. He says, now my soul is troubled. I love that honesty about the Lord. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't say, you know what? I'm going to the cross. It's no big deal. I'm God. You're not. Don't worry about it. I got all this, right? Jesus looks at the brokenness of this world. He sees the price that he's going to have to pay, and his spirit becomes unsettled. It's an honest emotional condition in Jesus' heart, and he's conflicted about this. Now my soul is troubled, but what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Do you, hear the, do you hear the wrestling match going on in the mind of Jesus? I, I can't believe that I've got to go to the cross. It, it just seems overwhelming. It seems impossible. It seems to be the worst thing imaginable. But wait a minute. Wait, am I going to say, Father, save me from this? If, if, if I say, Father, save me from this, then everybody else perishes. But for this purpose, I have come into this hour. And then he says something absolutely astounding. Father, glorify yourself. Glorify your name. In other words, I submit to whatever you have for me. I trust you no matter, even if it's the cross, that's where we go. But the wrestling match in Jesus emotionally is concluded with a passion for his father's glory, which leads him to announce a resolute vision. And he says this, three things. Now judgment, uh, now is the judgment of this world. I don't know if you've ever been to court and you're the object of the court's attention, I think that's kind of what you want to avoid, right? You, you know, you don't want to go to court and be the person that the judge looks at it and says, would you like to plead guilty or not guilty? I think you kind of want to avoid that particular moment. I've only had that experience once. I was 16 years old and I got a speeding ticket and my dad said, go to traffic court. It's no big deal. Just sit there till they call your name. So I'm sitting in this court and, and, and I'm waiting and they're calling names and they never call my name until the very end. And the judge says, is there anybody left? And I'm the only one left. And I got sentenced to eight weeks of traffic school for going 10 miles over the speed limit because my dad bribed the judge, right? (laughs) He called him, so did you teach my 16-year-old a lesson? And the judge said, happy, no worries, got it, right? I spent eight weeks with, never, it was bad. But there I am, 16 years old, and the judge is like, is there a Tom Ricks in the courtroom? And I'm like, yeah, here I am, right? It's judgment, right? Even even though it's a speeding ticket, it's, it's judgment. It's not a very good feeling. You ever get called out by the teacher? 
You know, they're looking over the glasses. What are you doing? It's judgment. Bit unsettling. And Jesus says, now it's time to judge the world. What's he saying? He's saying that this world, as I look at it, is broken with rebellion. It is out of step with God. And it is eternally lost. And that is the judgment of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And there's nothing you can do in your life to change that. And there's nothing I can do in my life to change that. No matter how hard we work, no matter how many good things we think we do, no matter how many times we walk by the offering churches in the back and put our offering in, no matter how many times we, we help somebody across the street, the sin in our lives and the rebellion against God so far outweighs that, that we stand condemned. And Jesus says, now the judgment is here. But then he goes on to say two other things. The first thing he says is this, and now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He begins to speak of mercy and grace and compassion. Satan has been allowed temporary power. And notice when Satan has temporary power, he tries to destroy everything. You know, ever notice how Satan never uses his power for good? Ever in all of Scripture, he always uses it to kill and to steal and to lie and to destroy. And Jesus says, we've had about enough of that. And I'm going to correct that. And he and his power and his authority are going to be done away with. My cross is going to overpower Satan. And he will have no place in the kingdom of God or with my people. We begin to see the promise and the proclamation and the persistence of Jesus. And then he says this, and when I am lifted up, the third thing, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Jesus is saying, I find the, the, the world uh, guilty of sin. I'm going to defeat Satan. And the cross, my death, will be the instrument of God for the salvation of humanity. So Jesus takes the responsibility upon himself. He gets out of the the judge's box, so to speak, and he takes off his robe, and he goes and he stands in the place of the condemned, and he becomes the guilty one. That's what happens on the cross, so that you and I could be proclaimed innocent and free and justified, not just now, not just this morning, but for all of eternity. So what do you do with that, friend? How does that get into your heart and your mind? Do I just kind of stand here and say, that is really sweet. (laughs) That is so nice that Jesus would do that. You know, we have so sterilized the cross and we've so made it something that that it, it never was intended to be, right? It's not an object of beauty in the true sense of the word. It's an object of scorn and shame and death and ridicule. And Jesus says, I embrace that. I will choose to be lifted up. And when I'm lifted up, I will bring grace. I will bring mercy and I will bring compassion. How do we apply that persistence, that proclamation to our lives? Let me give you just three thoughts and we'll be done. The first one is this. I want to come back to praise for just a moment because praise isn't a bad thing. Right? I know that you know, sometimes you get swept up in the moment and maybe you praise more than your heart really uh, feels, but praise is a good thing, right? But are we just momentarily swept up or is our heart continually passionate for Jesus? When you leave here this morning, where are you going? 
What are you doing? What, what, what's the rest of your day look like? What's your, what's your week look like? And I know there's kind of a special week. We're leading into Easter and we'll probably do some things. I hope you come to Way of the Cross. I think it's going to be wonderful. I hope you come on Good Friday. I think we're going to have a, a wonderful service and join us again next Easter Sunday. But, but in our homes and in our neighborhoods and in our schools and in our occupations and our jobs, are we going to bear the praise of Jesus? Are we going to share that in the way we live our lives with others? If we want to be successful at living lives of praise, I think it means, secondly, that we must joyfully embrace genuine discipleship. And genuine discipleship is defined by Jesus, is putting our faith in him, and then serving alongside him, following him. Those are action words, right? Those are not passive words. Right now, you're, you're kind of sitting passively, but you're taking it in. You're, you're actively listening, hopefully, paying attention. It's too early to be looking at the leaderboard at the Masters. Don't worry about that. You can check that out later on this afternoon. Hopefully you're, you're actively listening, right? But what do we do with our listening? What do we do when we hear these words? It means that we serve and we follow. That means when Jesus says, go this way, I go that way. It means when Jesus says, take up a hand and help somebody here, share the gospel with somebody, do a kind act for somebody, that I am following him, which leads to me serving him by serving others means it's, it's trusting in Christ in faith, but it's also understanding that it's not about me. It's about me following Jesus and serving him. I was praying for somebody this week, and, I, and I, w- I was driving down the street as I was praying, and the thought literally crossed my mind that I was praying for the wrong person. <laughs> literally, I, and I, God doesn't speak to me in an audible voice, but I really believe that the Holy Spirit just kind of kind of makes something click in my head, and I realized that in my praying for them, I was not praying for me. And I was the person who was going to have a direct impact on how the situation turned out. So I'm like, I need to start praying for me, not the other person. The person in this situation who needs the most prayer is me. <laughs> if I'm going to serve, if I'm going to follow, if I'm going to, to have patience and service and love and care for others, I need to understand that I must joyfully embrace discipleship, which a lot of times means you know, praying for Tom as much as I pray for you. Understanding that I need the power of the Spirit and the Word of God just as much as anyone else. And the third thought this morning is just asking the question, is God's glory my highest aim? Again, I come back to what Jesus said that is just truly astounding. He's wrestling with all of this, all this emotion, the joy of the moment, the excitement, the exuberance, but understanding the cross and what it means, wrestling with, with the awfulness of that, and coming to the conclusion, Father, glorify your name. Is that true in my life? Is that true in yours? I think Jesus' attitude and behavior as he faces the cross gives us a clear pathway to follow him. By his grace, may we do that this week. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we bless your name this morning because of your amazing life as our Messiah. As you received praise and worship, it, it, it would have been easy just to kind of stay there and ignore the cross and we would have been lost forever. And yet you didn't let praise, whether it was genuine or empty, uh, turn you away from the call that the Father had placed on you, that you joyfully accepted to redeem lost and broken people like the folks gathered in this room. So we praise you, Lord Jesus, but we also ask that our praise wouldn't just be verbal, it wouldn't just be intellectual, 
but that it would be lives lived in faith, trusting in you that what you say, that when, you, when the kernel dies and it grows up again, it will bear much fruit, and that when you're lifted up, you'll draw people to yourself. We pray that we would have faith to believe that, trust in that, receive that free gift of grace, but also that we would live in it and that we would share it with others. We pray in your name. Amen.